Okay, tonight we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 3. So we were here Tuesday night going verse by verse through chapters 3 and 4. We're really getting traction now. King Saul has passed away, died in battle. David is now the king of the tribe of Judah in the south. Ishabeth, the son of Saul, reigns over the 11 tribes in the north. But he's really a puppet king, if you will, because ultimately Abner, the former general, chief general of Saul, is the man with the military empowering Ishabeth to be the king. And so for seven and a half years, after we read about last week in chapter 2, verse by verse, the hand-to-hand combat where the 12 men all fought each other and stabbed each other, and then there was a battle, and a couple hundred of Saul's men, former Saul's men died, and then just about 20 or so of David's men died. And from that time on, the kingdom of Saul, what was left of it, was getting weaker and weaker. And the kingdom of David, what was emerging, was getting stronger and stronger. And remember, from the time that David was anointed to be king to the time he became king of Judah, it was about 13 years, high school graduation to turning 30. And all those adventures where Saul, his father-in-law, is persecuting him and pursuing him and chasing him, Abner is also a part of that pursuit. We don't know what kind of relationship David had with Abner. We know what kind of relationship he had with Saul. Because remember, David led the armies as well before Abner and defeated Goliath and killed his 10,000s, and they sang about it, right? So... These people know each other. David knows Abner. Abner knows David. Ishabeth would know David. Ishabeth's the brother of Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend, right? So the story continues on as we come to the text tonight. And we left off with that whole thing where that last battle, and now seven and a half years have gone by, and we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. We need to read this verse, and we read that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And so, picking it up in verse 6, after seven and a half years, these events happened, and as David's family expanded and grew, now we're seven and a half years down the road, and we read that it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. So Ishabeth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? So Abner had taken one of Saul's former concubines and had uh, sexual intimacy with her, made her his wife or relationship, common law, whatever. But he's got, his woman is one of Saul's former concubines. And in the world of kings and queens, that's like saying, I'm your new king because I now have the concubine of the former king. So that's that kind of background that we'd get to that. But nevertheless, maybe he just loved her and wanted to be with her. Verse 8. Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishabeth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. That's the farthest north of the farthest south of Israel. And he, that is Ishabeth, could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you. You shall not see my face unless you first bring Makal, Saul's daughter, 
when you come to see me, my face. So David sent messengers to Ishabeth, Saul's son, saying, Give me Machal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishabeth sent and took her from her husband, from Palatel, the son of Laish. And then her husband went with her to Bahiram, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, Listen, guys, in times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all the enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, and all seemed all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king that you may make a covenant with you, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king. So he comes before David, and he says, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why, why is it you sent him away, and, and he has already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know any of this. He didn't know. And now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ahasuel, his brother. Remember, seven years before, Ahasuel, Joab's brother, pursued Abner in combat. Abner warned him two times, turn around, don't come after me, lest I take your life. But Ahasuel was determined to go after the big fish, Abner, and Abner struck him down with a spear and killed him on sight. That happened seven years before. Verse 28. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever, the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle, that battle that had been seven years prior. Now, Joab and Asahel are cousins of David. So there's family relations there when you're involving these men. Joab was a very powerful man in David's army, yet he's not listed as one of his 30 mighty men. He's the most powerful man in the army of David, essentially, David's entire journey, but he's not considered one of the mighty men of David, which should get our attention when history, it's one thing when we write our own history and see history that we think it is about our life. It's quite another when we're gone and the Holy Spirit speaks about, speaks about the legacy of our life and determines what really was the legacy of our life. The general for David is not one of his 30 mighty men in the word of God. Now, these events have been coming and moving in this direction for seven and a half years. And now it's all coming to pass. From the day that Samuel showed up at the house of Jesse and anointed David with the anointing oil when he was a teenager, defeating Goliath, the priest being struck down by Dog the Edomite, 
David sparing Saul's life in the cave by cutting the robe but not taking his life. David gathering the spear from Saul while he slept and reproving Abner for watch, not watching over Saul while he slept. We've read all about this in 1 Samuel. The witch at Endor with Saul and then Saul dying in battle. David rescuing his family and all the people wanting to kill him, probably led by Joab wanting to kill him when we read about the events in Ziglag a few weeks back. And now here we are. David is established seven and a half years in Judah, the king of Judah, the tribe that he's from. He's got multiple wives, which proves to be a problem down the road. He has multiple sons, which proves to be an even bigger problem down the road. But nonetheless, he's still in the strength of youth, and these are the events that happen. This story and the person that I wrote of it, read of it, focuses on these three men who are interwound and yoked together. And though the context is men, it could apply for women as well. They are all are playing unique roles in this seven-day period. They're all having unique things reflect things about their life, who they are. For Abner, it's his last week on planet Earth. In fact, it's his last day. Tremendous insight on his life. The former general of the armies of Israel under King Saul, the army that pursued David for about a decade in the wilderness. And by the way, how come Abner didn't die in the battle against the Philistines seven and a half years before? That's a good question I've been asking myself. How did Abner not die in that battle? But he didn't. He survived it. When we look at these three men, we have three very different type of men at this crossroad in life. And as we look at these men in this story, we have to ask ourselves, who would we really choose to be? And of course, immediately we'd all think, well, David. We would think that. But if we look at the life and the person Abner is in his last week and his last day, there's things that we can learn. If we look at David, there's obviously things we can learn. And as we look at Joab, there are things we can learn. For Abner in this story is a man that gets broken and then becomes better and finds peace at the table of King David on his last day who went in peace and was struck down in violence. Joab will later be executed under the reign of Solomon because he shed the blood of war in time of peace, the very story we just read about. It was not war. It was not combat. And God does make a distinction. He killed Abner in cold blood. So Abner did not die in combat of war. He died the victim of a criminal murderous act. He's the victim of a violent crime. A crime perpetrated with deceit. One where he did not seek to defend himself. And if anyone could defend himself in this situation, wouldn't it be Abner? If anyone was suspicious of Joab in this very quiet, private meeting, wouldn't it have been Abner? Think it through. And yet, Abner was yielded to whatever was going to happen in that moment. And we have no record of him defending himself, but just being stabbed and murdered in cold blood by Joab. But we, get, we learn more about Abner in this text tonight than any of the other texts where we read about Abner. Now, David, this chapter starts out with his wives and kids, and yet he calls for his original wife that was taken from him by his father-in-law, given to another man, contrary to his purposes and what he would have wanted, contrary to God's design for marriage, obviously. 
We don't really understand David's motives in wanting Michael back and what that's all about. But he wanted her back. And that's part of the story. It plays a factor later on down the road. That becomes in the story later on down the road. And then Joab, who's coming from a victorious raid against enemies of God, he's on a, he's a mountaintop experience. He's building the wealth, the equity wealth of the, of the kingdom. He's the general of the great King David. He thinks the worst when Abner's there. He thinks the worst. Small-minded people think small-minded. They're petty, they're vindictive, they're vengeful, and they tend to move toward fear, bitterness, and think the worst. His assessment of this situation, Abner being there, is completely wrong. And he would have pleaded his case before David as a very powerful person. Obviously, he didn't win the argument or the discussion, and he left the, ki- the king's palace, the throne room of David, and went off to do what he's going to do. And the bitterness of seven and a half years are going to come to pass. But know this with Joab, his bitterness is based upon nepotism, which is favoritism toward family members, self-deception, and delusion. And the irony is he'll be allowed to live for many more years and just continue to be toxic, violent, and without control the rest of his life. David would say in this very chapter, the sons of Zariah are too harsh for me. I just just can't deal with them. They're like family members you can't get rid of, and they're just too harsh for you. And you have to manage those relationships from here to eternity, and it might be decades. Could be neighbors. They're not going to move. They're not going to move. They're just too harsh for you. Could be co-workers, and you like your job, and you like your benefits, and they're not going to quit, and you're not going to quit, and they're just too harsh for you, and you just have to find a way to work through it. That's what David had to do for decades after this event. So there's these three men, and they all really, their lives are surrounded and interwoven with David in this story. And David is one of the men. So let's look at Abner a little bit. When he starts out in this text, what moves him to action, so he has been living in rebellion to God's will for seven and a half years. Because, you know, out of the abundance of a heart, a woman speaks or a man speaks. And we see... When he blows his gasket with Ishabeth, he says there in verse 9, May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. By his own mouth and from the words of his heart, he is saying, We all know that God swore that David would be the king. So for seven and a half years, Abner, so for seven and a half years, Joab is stewing in bitterness in the king's palace, how he's going to avenge his brother. But for seven and a half years, Abner, in control of 11 tribes and the throne of the north, with Ishabeth, the puppet president, king, he's been living a lie. He has been resisting the Lord. And it reminds us of Saul of Tarsus when he's going to Damascus to gather Christians and persecute them and draw them off to death. When Jesus strikes him down on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goats, isn't it? 
And we find that when we really know in our conscience, in our heart, what God wants us to do, and we resist it and suppress it for years, that's a hard slog. That's arduous. It is hard to kick against the goads for years. But, you know, pride and flesh are strong, and they will kick against the goads. Because in the world of the remnant of Saul's kingdom, Abner still controls the power. The army is what he controls. Everyone knows whoever controls the army controls the political power. Just ask Putin. He controls the army. He has the ultimate power. Therefore, he controls the economy. Because he who controls the military controls the economy. So he controls the GDP of the 11 northern kingdoms, tribes in the northern kingdom. He is in charge of the wealth. And he essentially is using Ishabeth as the son of Saul, propped up as the puppet in power, but everyone would know he derives his power from Abner. Abner goes after this woman, Rizpah. He wanted to be the woman. He's the, he's the most powerful man in the northern kingdom. He controls the power and the possessions. And this is a concubine. She never was a queen. And she's with him and he's with her. And they have a relationship. So again, we don't know if this is a relationship to demonstrate political power and clout. Or if it's a relationship because the guy likes the girl and she likes him. And they want to be together as a man and a woman. We just don't know. But I'll tell you what, when you get involved in romance and intimacy in the palace, hey, now you got a telenovela. Now you got a soap opera. And there's a lot of things Ishabeth could have said to Abner that Abner would have let slide. But when you go out for his relationship with that woman, that was the hot button. That's that, and quite often when you go after the man about his woman or the woman about her man, hey, that'll. See, the emotion of romance is the strongest emotion, pretty much. There's a lot of people, a lot of books on this, that when you get friendship, love, and then romance, that's a really strong emotion. It's almost considered our highest creativity, too, when someone's got a great friend, they're in love, and they're, and they're involved romantically. It's been proven that the pinnacle of creativity happens at that level. This guy and this woman, they're good, and you come after that, that's it. And, you know, God uses different things to break us. He struck down Saul on the road to Damascus. He broke Jacob when Jacob knew Esau was coming and he was scared to lose his life and he wrestled with Jacob all night long and he broke him when he wrestled with Jacob all night there back in the book of Genesis. There are times when we are broken. People can be broken through a stroke, through a divorce, through loss of wealth, through all sorts of heartache, tragedies, human experiences, random bad luck, whatever they think it is. But we must be broken because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And in this, these words of Adam, there's something very interesting he says. He goes, am I a dog's head of Judah? What an interesting phrase. He's like, you know who you're talking to? You think I'm a dog's head in Judah? You think I'm a barking dog outside of Bethlehem? Think about this, though. What did David say 
when he spoke to Saul, I'm not even a dog. I'm a flea. See the difference? David had already humbled himself and was broken before the Lord years before in his trials and tribulations. And in addressing those in authority, he says, I'm not even a dog. I'm a flea on a dog. But here's Abner saying, Ishmith, you think I'm a dog's head in Judah? See, he's got that pride. He's got the pride, the power, and the possessions. And right here, this what Ishabeth said, this just this broke the stalemate. Just opened it up. And God will break the stalemate in people's lives who are resisting him. And since Abner would step into eternity in probably a week's time from this story, or you know, maybe a month, it's a short time. In hindsight, aren't you glad that he broke in this event? In hindsight, aren't you happy that Ishabeth said this so that Abner could be released from living a lie for seven and a half years and from his own mouth confess that David is meant to be the king and is the will of the Lord. Aren't you grateful that when he reached out to David, David said, just do this one thing, and he did it. Aren't you grateful that when he went to the elders of Israel, he said, we all know this is God's plan, and he quotes the Lord. Aren't you grateful that this is what happened in Abner's life? Look what he says here in verse 17 when he's addressing the elders of Israel. He says, now do it. For the Lord has spoken, saying, you know, seven and a half years is a long time to dry up with your dry bones when you're resisting the Lord. Like David would even say in Psalm 31, when his bones dried up within him. But when you finally let go and you say, you know what, I'm tired of resisting the Lord. I'm tired of fighting. I surrender. I am breaking before you, Lord. I'm humbling myself. All that I've held on to, I'm letting it go now, and I'm casting myself fully on the mercy of the house of David, which really for us is on the mercy of the house, one greater than David, the son of David, Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He has confessed that he's been in rebellion. He is exhorting everyone he can influence and lead to obey the oracle of the Lord. The oracle of the Lord is, God said David's king. Enough of this charade, enough of this gang, this game. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's make this right, right now. We've been wrong for seven and a half years. Let's use our power. Let's do the right thing, and let's make this right and be reconciled to David and see God's will come to pass that David would be what God spoke of him to be almost 20 years ago. I'm really glad this is Abner's life in his last month, week, and even day. And in so doing, confessing the will of the Lord, exhorting others as he quotes the will of the Lord to obey the Lord, he finds himself with 20 of his most trusted men feasting at the banqueting table of David, which is a table of peace. You see, when we let God break us, when we decide it's better to obey than to play charades and games. We're always moving ourselves toward the blessings. So once we're broken, things get better. And this is a really good look for Abner's life. The last meal he ever had, think about this. We've talked about the last meal because Saul had his last meal after the witch at Endor. We just talked about that. His last meal, Abner, you know, Surrendering is humbling. I was thinking about this. Jennifer and I, when we lived in Virginia Beach, we used to go to Roanoke 
in Lynchburg, Troy Warner's church out there in Lynchburg, and then Roanoke. We had friends in Roanoke. And when you take the highway from Virginia Beach through southern Virginia, you take a highway, and you go by Appomattox. You all know what Appomattox is. That's where the South surrendered to the North. Robert E. Lee, Ulysses Grant, the surrender of the South. Historians rightfully say that was an incredible moment because Ulysses Grant was extremely gracious with Robert E. Lee and surrender. These guys all knew each other at West Point before the war. Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederate States, but really, and the Capitol's there in Richmond, I've been to it, but really, the president of the Southern States was Robert E. Lee. His grandson being related to George Washington, his grandfather being related to George Washington, He's as Virginia as Virginia can be. He wasn't defending slavery. He was defending he could never turn his sword against his home state, the Commonwealth of Virginia. He loved the Lord like all those people did on both sides. He taught Bible studies the rest of his life after the surrender. To this day in U.S. history, the surrender of the South to the North is considered one of the greatest acts in our history because Robert E. Lee could have continued the battle and the battle for the South and the Civil War could continue at least two more years, as it stood at that point in time. If you Google Robert E. Lee and famous quotes of Robert E. Lee on Wikipedia, just Google it, you'll see the amazing quotes he has about just honoring God and recognizing you gave your best, it's over, let it go, now let the healing come. And he was, he was so determined to see healing for the nation that once they surrendered, he never held a bitter thing against the North, he, you know, much of the South was very bitter against the North, especially after Sherman's march through the South, carpetbaggers and all that stuff. He never, ever held bitterness in his heart against the North, and he and Ulysses Grant were actually good friends. And in so doing, that healing began with humility and brokenness and, and getting better, and our country got better. And Lincoln, of course, accepted that surrender, and he himself was assassinated by John Wilkins Booth shortly thereafter at Ford's Theater there in D.C., where I've also been, by the way. And there was a great cost of humility by the defeated and the defeaters to save our country. And because humility worked in both cases, at the table of peace, our nation was preserved. In World War II, when the emperor and his, well, the emperor sent his six guys to the ship, they're called the Big Six, they're on the Mighty Mo, Missouri, and MacArthur was there. And the final absolute surrender of Japan in World War II took place. A very similar thing where the U.S. was incredibly gracious in victory and Japan was incredibly humble and gracious in defeat. And we all know the story of Louis Zamperini in the movie Unbroken and the book. Many of you read the book Unbroken. I did. Many of you saw the movie. Louis Zamperini was tormented by a psychopath, sociopath, narcissist named The Bird, prison guard who tormented him, tormented him, tormented him, and tormented him. And after Louis Zamperini got saved at a Billy Graham crusade, for the next four decades, he tried to reconcile with the bird. But originally, when World War II was over, he was a, a war criminal, the bird. And he was ruthless and shrewd. And he hid himself for four years during the first four years after World War II was done, and they could never apprehend him. And finally, Truman realized that for full healing to happen for both nations, there had to be grace and humility and Japan need to be empowered. And look at Japan now, one of our strongest allies ever since. And 
the war crimes were, were uh, pardoned. The bird never served any time for murdering, torturing, and demented behavior to U.S. prisoners incarcerated under his care during World War II. And he lived a, a long life. I can't say he lived a good life. He's a lot like Joab, but he lived a long life and refused to see Ernie Zamperini. Ernie Zamperini, he held the torch. He ran with the torch in the, uh, the Tokyo Olympics. He was restored because he forgave. He was like David at the banquet table with Abner. I forgive you people. He became a hero in Japan. Former POW of Japan became a hero for the people of Japan in the 50s and the 60s and onward, even the 70s. It's an amazing story. But there's another table that brought the death of 100 million people for how it was handled. Because in the armistice and of Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles in World War I, the French, led by Foch, were extremely bitter. It was the worst war in human history. It was the Great War. And the Allies were bitter. Britain was bitter. A lot of people died. In fact, 2,500 people died on the last day of the war before the armistice went in place. So much killing. That when they did the treaty, they put terms on Germany that no one could keep and no one could handle. They so wanted to crush what had previously been the world's most powerful empire, the Prussian Empire, along with the British, that they put such terms on them that no one could live by them. And they put them into hyperinflation, various coups, which led to the rise of the Nazi party, Mein Kampf, Hitler, his season of power, and World War II, which killed over 100 million people on planet Earth. Because the terms of surrender were so harsh and so bitter that they punished with resentment, vindictiveness, the vanquished foes with no opportunity for a future. It sowed the seeds deep in Hitler's heart of resentment as a former foot soldier in World War I. And those seeds sowed poison and bitterness and resentment. So by the time he was incarcerated with the attempted coup and then wrote Mein Kampf and told everyone what he was going to do, my struggle, Mein Kampf, he came out and did it. And the whole plan almost didn't even survive what he was doing when it was all said and done. It's important for the people in strength who are the conquerors to show mercy and grace to the vanquished foes. It's going to be better for the victors. It's going to be a better opportunity for forgiveness and healing for the vanquished. And the world's going to be a lot better place. Because the only alternative to forgiveness and reconciliation is bitterness and the sword continuing to devour. And the sword is never satisfied. Anyone can seek revenge. Which really brings our attention to David. Because he's a bigger man, and he's a blessed man. Because as he went through trials and persecutions, which in some ways were led by Abner. Listen, when Saul came with the army of 3,000 yet again in the Judean wilderness to come after David, and David took the initiative to go after them first, Abner was the commander of the army of Israel. 
And it was Abner that David spoke to for not protecting the king, which is ironic because we know the Lord put a deep sleep on everybody. So even if Abner wanted to protect King Saul, he couldn't because the Lord put a deep sleep on him. The Lord is always in control. But if David, if David wanted to blame anyone that was living for the hell he went through for 13 years being chased by Saul, who better to blame than Abner? the general of Saul's army. When 3,000 surrounded him at the Rock of Escape, who led the 3,000? Probably Abner. Who provided the escape? The Lord. When Saul relieved himself in the cave and God delivered him and he spared him, who was the commander outside the cave? Probably Abner, but for sure with the jug and the spear later on, absolutely Abner. When Abner came to the, who kept David from being king for seven and a half years of all Israel? For sure, Abner. Abner, 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 Abner. How many times at the dinner table with David and his multiple wives and kids? If Abner would just, if Abner would do this, if Abner hadn't done that, I should have got Abner when I held Saul's sword, like, or spear. Like, Abner, you know, you can let Abner dominate everything in your life when you're David. And then, lo and behold, Look who's coming to dinner. Abner. You know, this is where small-minded people go like this. How's that feel, Abner? You know what it's like to act like a madman with the Philistines? How's that feel? You know what it's like to pursue your, all your wealth that the Malachites took? How's that feel? You know what it's like to know like you should be running the whole country and you're running one-twelfth of it? How's that feel? But that's not how David was, because that's how small-minded people are. Don't be small-minded. Don't be bitter. Don't be vindictive. Don't be resentful. See, David wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And he said, he prepares a place for me in the presence of my enemies at the table, and he anoints my head with oil. God's got her back. No one needs to tell Abner who the king is on this day. No one needs to tell Abner who's justified. Who wins? You know, I have always loved watching sports. I love dramatic winners and dramatic losers. It hurts to watch dramatic losses like Billy Buckner's boot in the World Series. You know, if you're a Boston fan, remember that. I remember watching that at my dad's house with the Mets, game, game six. There it is, Billy Buckner boot. You know, you forever identify with Billy Buckner's boot and the error he made, and the Mets win game six, they win game seven. You know, like, you know, the whole world of sports, right? The thrill of victory and the agony defeat, and the skier goes off the ski jump, just gets tumbled. There's drama in that. I like winners and losers. Like, whenever someone's like a tie, it's like, oh, gosh, don't we just hate a tie? Someone needs to win and someone needs to lose. The best winners are humble winners. And David is clearly the winner here. And his humility is so gracious toward the loser. One can only imagine the emotion Abner felt leading 20 men who are trusting him to surrender arms like the big six coming to the mighty Mo to surrender to the, United, to the allied forces there in uh, September of 45. One can only imagine. It's so humbling to show up as the vanquished foe like Robert E. Lee to the house at Appomattox. Like the German politician and the guys coming to the train cart there at Treaty of Versailles. It's so humbling to be the loser and have to abate yourself before the winner. But when you've been broken by the Lord and you're the better for it with the Lord, then good for you. Because when you're broken and made better by the Lord, 
when the Lord conquers us like King David, he's going to bring us to his banqueting table and pronounce grace and mercy and goodness and kindness over us. That's what the Lord's going to do. When we come to Christ, he's not out to punish us and make us do penance and all these things. Yeah, we'll make straight a crooked path. But he, he didn't die on the cross to make things arduous, difficult, complex for us to be saved and to know forgiveness. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Solomon would write in Proverbs 3. Ah, oh, how good it is to be forgiven from the Lord. David sang about it in his Psalms there in the early 30s as well. Just to come and be forgiven before God for our sins, to humble ourselves, to be broken, and to be made better, to confess from our heart that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God the Father, to confess that Jesus reigns and the King is King, to confess that God is the final authority over everything and to invite him to reign over every cell in our body, that brokenness leads to being better. And if we have one day left to live, then good for us. It was a great day. The worst day of the thief's life when he was crucified on the cross became the best day of his life. For he hung naked and ashamed on the cross as a violent criminal. And the first part of that day, he mocked Jesus Christ who hung next to him. And the longer he looked at Jesus, the more he broke. And the better he got. Until he completely broke and humbled himself as a violent criminal, turned to God of the universe, to whom all things are made, for whom all things are made, by whom all things consist, and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus promised him, that that very moment he was forgiven and would be with him in glory that very day. It's never too late for brokenness and the confession to become better. And that's what Abner found. Because David is the type of Jesus, because in his trials and tribulations, well, it says in Hebrews concerning Jesus, that through his afflictions he was perfected in those things. There's a message to that wording there in Hebrews chapter 2, but nonetheless it's there. Jesus had to come and die and suffer, and through suffering, he's matured or completed in what his role is as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, being able to wholly save all those who come to him and call upon his name. Father, if there's any other way, there was no other way. So when you read Psalm 22, and you read some Psalms, I'm going through Psalms, you know, some Psalms you read them like, I always want application. Are you like me? Like, I read a Psalm like, what's my application? Oh, he says he's going to do this. You humble yourself. He's going to bless you. You're going to do this. Like, I, I want application. Some songs you read them like, there's just an application. This is Jesus talking to the Father and what he's doing for you and me to be saved. The only application here, the king here is the king, not me like, oh, God's going to use me or he's going to use you as the queen. No, and the king here is the king and the king Jesus. And the context of this psalm is prophetic for Jesus. And all those things he did, he had to do. When Abraham took up Isaac as a type of what would happen on Mount Moriah, where it happened 2,000 years with Jesus. Hey, he came down the mountain with his son. When the father put his son up on that same mountain 2,000 years later, he was crucified and he was separated from the father. But as Jesus has gone through all those things for us to save us, he is like David, the greater David. And he's the promise that God made to David that the kingdom would have no ending and the kingdom is Jesus. And even as we have the table of the Lord, the cup and the bread, to remember his grace and to be reminded of his forgiveness and to be reminded he's coming to reign, 
Even so, that last meal for Abner, and how different for Abner to come with brokenness, being better, and confessing truth, and rallying people to full obedience to the Lord as, he's, as it's revealed to them, as opposed to Saul with the witch at Endor. His last meal, he's with the witch. And he's calling up Samuel. Someone's like, what are you doing? You know, like, I mean, like, what a last meal. Just all bad, 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 D, E, all the above. Very bad. Abner, good. Good, good, good. E, all the above, very good. So this is a great word that it's never too late for people who say it's too late or think it's too late. My father-in-law, when I first met him, he said, it's too late for me to find grace. And I said, it is never too late for you to find grace. He was an apostatized Catholic at the time. And what wonderful ministry my wife and I had with him and Jesus the last two years of his life. He's thinking like, oh, you're going to be there at St. Peter at the gate. I'm like, I don't think so, but thanks for the thought. You know, it's a kind thought. It's never too late. So anyone listening to this message ever in time, space, and matter, just know it's never too late to let God break you and make you better as you confess the word and the will of God over planet Earth in your life and take those steps of obedience to do so. Because one and greater than King David is inviting you to the table. King Jesus is inviting us to his banquet feast. It's even better than this one. But this is the table of peace, right? Because at the dinner table of peace, it's the table of peace. When Abner left, how did he leave? He left in peace. Peace is used three times. He left in peace. And that's what we find. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Abner left in peace. But there is the warning of Joab. And we talked about him earlier, and we'll just close it with him. Because there's always a warning. Because to not repent brings warning. To not believe brings consequences of unbelief. And Joab, well, he was filled with bitterness. He was self-deceived. Isn't it funny? He said, surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you. How ironic. Isn't it so often that we accuse people of the very thing that we are? He accuses Abner of coming to David to deceive him when in fact, Joab's the one that's deceived. The Holy Spirit tells us that Joab's brother was warned two times from Abner in the battle, get someone else's armor. Turn around now. I don't want to kill you. He warned him twice. So Joab's brother died in his own pride trying to take down the biggest fish in Israel. And he truly bit off more than he could chew, and he died in combat. He picked, he, he didn't fight the good fight. He picked the wrong battle, and he died in it. And now, seven and a half years later, Joab is blaming Abner for what his brother did. His brother died because his brother brought it on himself. But bitterness blames that person no matter what. Because bitterness always has a scapegoat. It always has an object of attack and vile and, and wrath against. And Joab's wrath, he should have just blamed his brother for being foolish enough to try and take on the general of the northern kingdom. Instead, it's all Abner's fault. And that's what blame, small-minded blaming people do, bitter people do. They blame, they blame, they blame, they blame, they blame. They're like folks in the French blaming the Prussians, the Germans. They blame, they blame, they blame. And Hitler rises, they blame, they blame, they blame. Hitler was so bitter by the time he came to power when he conquered Paris and 
started Fiji French. He brought the same railroad card in that they signed that uh, armistice in 20 years ago and made the French surrender in the same train coach that Germany surrendered in at the Treaty of Versailles. That's how far bitterness goes. We don't ever want to go that way. Our story is not Mein Kampf. Our story is my savior. Because you focus on the struggle, you'll find somebody to blame, and you'll never, you'll never find peace. But if you focus on the Savior, you'll just be broken, you'll be better, and you'll feast at the table of peace. Joab. And in the end, Joab was bitter. He was banned. He was banished. He was cursed. And he died at the altar of the Lord, being struck down under the reign of Solomon. In fact, David said to Solomon before he died, you have to kill him. There has to be justice because he shed the blood of war in the time of peace. And I should have done it, but I didn't. And you have to clean up this mess. And of course, what did Joab do as soon as David was died? He yoked himself with Adonijah, who was not meant to be king, instead of Solomon. So he made himself an adversary of the will of the Lord anyways when he allied with Adonijah against Solomon. And of course Solomon had to see him executed. Joab was always bitter and always fighting the Lord, and he never arrived. He conquered the Gibeonites, but he couldn't conquer the bitterness in his own soul. What a tragic story. Let us not be found in us any root of bitterness, the Bible warns us. But let us be people who are bigger and better and blessed. Joab is a great warning of bitterness. Where even David, a man of war, would say, the man who couldn't build the temple because he's a man of blood would say, these guys, they're, they're too harsh for me. I mean the man who cut off Goliath's head and put it in a knapsack and carried it around. He says, these guys, they're just too harsh for me. That's all I need to know when David says that about them. So in the end, when we think who we want to be, we definitely don't want to be Joab, because that's the worst life possible to live. So tonight, if you have any bitterness in your heart toward anyone for anything whatsoever, in Jesus' name, cry out for mercy and the ability to forgive them. And maybe you're like David in the seven years, waiting for it all to be reconciled. You're like, ah, Abner, let it go. Commit Abner to the Lord. So when he shows up at your dinner table, you actually love him and forgive him and pronounce shalom, shalom, shalom on Abner. Your life will be better. be better for Abner. be better for everybody. No root of bitterness. Jesus didn't die on the cross and save us to leave any bitterness in our heart. No root of bitterness on this day in 2022. No root of bitterness on our last day on planet Earth. Let us be the people that have a bigger vision and a bigger heart to forgive, speak peace, bring reconciliation, and move forward toward the will, the plans, and the purposes of God in our own life, to the blessings of other people's lives, to the glory of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. In Jesus' name, amen.